Father, we give you thanks for um, the privilege of gathering together that we often take for granted. Um, the privilege of waking up early and being able to come to a place and to be together to talk about the revelation of the good news of Jesus Christ and what it means for our lives. Um, Father, we pray that you would, um, God, that you would speak the word of your power into our lives this morning by your spirit, that you would bring back into, into focus perhaps things that we've known for a long time, things that are often familiar, but things that we have either forgotten or that have been pushed to the periphery of how we live. We ask, for, ask God that you would um, be gracious to us and that you would meet us where we are. Um, Father, that you would speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, just uh, two really quick announcements this morning. Um, first of all, uh, um, I don't know if you've uh, you've known this or heard this, but we've been taking trips to Houston um, to help with the Hurricane Harvey relief efforts since last fall. And those trips have uh, picked up in frequency this spring. And, um, and now, I believe, next weekend is the last... This weekend is the... Yeah, the next week... Yeah, this weekend is the last relief trip on the books. In other words, the work that we've been doing is, well, it's at least, it's finished for us. And um, I want to recognize Michael Denton. Michael, would you stand up? Would you stand up? So, and I'll tell you why. Because um, Michael, who is a father with, you know, with school-age kids and who works full-time, about a week before Hurricane Harvey hit, he was appointed to be in charge of our disaster relief. A week before that happened, and um, he, yeah, he, Michael would say, "Poor timing." We think the providence and grace of God. You know, um, God knew exactly what He was doing, and Michael has done a tremendous job not only in organizing relief efforts to help out with what's going on in Houston, but also in paving a vision for the future of how we do disaster relief as a community to help other people. And so, Michael, thank you for all your work. I mean, um, hours upon hours upon hours of being here in the church and working essentially another job uh, to empower us to serve well. And so we thank you for serving us, brother. Um, Second thing is some of our men this morning um, are in Cuba on a mission trip. Um, Cuba is a place that's been open to us through um, a ministry called East West, where we have a chance to, to share the gospel with many who've never heard uh, the good news of Christ at all. And so just as you think about it, uh, I know that, um, that David Newman is there, maybe a couple others. Uh, if you could pray for them at your tables, that would be an encouragement to them, I'm sure as well. So let's dig in this morning. You probably know that Easter was on Sunday. Um, it was full. I'm sure in whatever church you attend, it was uh, fairly full as well. And Easter signifies a, a lot of things for us, I think, in our, uh, the cycle of our year. One of the things it signifies is that we should be moving on now to longer, sunnier, warmer, mosquito-filled days. <laughs> but before we do that, I want us to go backward this morning. Um, and I want us to revisit why Easter happened at all. I want us to think this morning about the radical uniqueness of Good Friday 
in the place of the cross, the place that the cross occupies in the Christian message and in our lives as men. So PBS aired a, a television series years ago called The Christians. It was an you know, examination of how the movement uh, that became a religion, Christianity, got started. And in that series, the narrator says this. He says, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and the degradation of its God. The only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and the degradation of its God. Now, to be sure, there are other parts of the Christian message, but um, there are also other religious myths that have stories of, of gods or a god coming to earth to be among people. So, somewhat similar to our version of the Incarnation, although the Incarnation is utterly unique, that Paul defends, that the evangelists defend, but somewhat similar in that gods will come to earth and visit with creatures or mortals or whatever else. I mean, that's what happens with Thor, right? You know, and Superman and... This is not like an uncommon story in terms of devotion. Um, there's also a lot of stories in religious literature about uh, gods or a god returning from the dead, uh, coming back alive. And so something at least uh, similar to, to our version of the resurrection, I, I get that the resurrection is utterly unique, that it's, it's different than those things too, but, but the Egyptian gods, for example, they died and rose every year as part of their harvest cycle. <laughs> They would go down and die, and they would come back again. And so, you know, there was some similarity there as well, but there is no other religion, no other religion, that has anything like the cross as its central focus. The cross is a completely unique, universally unsuitable object of human faith and devotion. Uh, universally unsuitable object of human faith and devotion, and yet here it stands at the center of what we believe is true about the love of God and the justice of God and what it means to be men formed in the image of Christ. That's what I want to focus on this morning. Uh, I'll say this up front. In America, we, we tend to be largely optimistic people, right? We're glass half full. We're can-do people. Um, I love the start of a new baseball season, although we're a weekend now and the Rangers are, what, one and four? But typically, okay, if I said this on Friday, this is our year, right? I mean, like the start of a new football season. Tennessee should be bad next year, but it's going to be our year. Like, we're going to find our sister Jean, right? And we're going to have a great year. I mean, we, we you know, the master starts on Thursday. Whoever you root for, this is, this is his year. We tend to be optimistic people, and we tend to want our religion to follow suit. To be uplifting, to be encouraging, to be affirming. I mentioned this to someone else. That's one of the reasons Easter tends to be so crowded. Easter is the music's, I mean, everything is, I mean, God's going to make everything okay. You know, one author puts it this way, we have not become a secular society so much as we become a generically religious one. Not so much a secular society as much as we become a generically religious one, which means be good, do good, God loves you, everything's going to turn out okay in the end. This is our year. This is our year. And yet in the Christian story, the central focus is the suffering and degradation of our God, without which it would be impossible to build any definition, so we believe, any definition of love and justice and reconciliation and restoration. So very directly this morning, 
Although you should know every story in the gospel, every story in the gospel exists in the shadow of the cross, even the manger scene. But specifically this morning, I want us to talk directly about the cross. I want us to encounter Jesus talking to someone at the cross and to think about there the work of God for us. Let me read for us from John chapter 19, verses 16 through 30, and we'll talk about what John sets up for us in this scene. John writes, So he, that is Pilate, delivered him, that is Jesus, over to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to finish or to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. I want to talk about three things this morning with this particular encounter, the, the main point I want to make overall is I want to use the language of Paul to frame everything that we're talking about that morning, and that's, I'll get to it in a second, but Paul calls the cross a scandal. It is both the word of scandal and the word of power. The word of scandal and the word of power. How is the cross both a scandal and power? Okay, three points though, particularly from John's episode here. The first I want you to see is how John describes the contempt of the cross. The contempt of the cross. That is the horror of the cross as an instrument specifically of shame and disgrace. The contempt. Number two, the community of the cross. So Jesus chooses this moment in his ministry to forge these deep relational bonds between John, presumably John, the one who was loved, and between Mary, who, had, who weren't like family at all, but he chooses this moment. Okay? So the community of the cross. And finally, the conclusion of the cross. What does it mean for Jesus to say, it is finished? 
and what you'll see in, in your questions this morning, what ongoing impact do those words have for us as we live in the shadow of what God has done here at the cross, that it is finished. So let's trace that out together. First, the contempt of the cross. And I want to start not with what John says, but what the Apostle Paul says this morning. And I want you to listen to his words uh, uh, from a letter that he writes to an early church. The early church at Corinth. He spent a lot of time with Corinth, a lot of time with the Corinthians, excuse me, writing to the Corinthians. And I want you to, to hear his words to them. But before I do that, some context. I want you to remember what the gospel before Paul says this, has meant for Paul, right? So the gospel is a message that Paul has given everything away from, for. If you remember, you may know that Paul was a Roman citizen, which was not a given for a Jew. I mean, he, had, he had some social standing in the larger world, uh, the, you know, the cosmopolitan Western world in which the Jews were situated. He had social standing there. Uh, Paul was also a Pharisee, which meant he had social standing among his own people. He was important. He was well-respected. People would come to him when they had questions, important questions for life. Um, Paul says that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the, at the time, one of the wealthier tribes. So he, you know, it was, you wanted to be, you wanted to be in that school zone, okay? You wanted to be of the tribe of Benjamin. That was a good place to be. As a Jewish man, Paul was at the center of his world. He was relevant. He was among the culturally, culturally elite, the intelligentsia of his day. And yet Paul, if you remember, cut ties with all of that to live a life of danger and affliction as an evangelist of the crucified Christ. All of it. Now listen to how he describes his ministry to the church at Corinth. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't spend a lot of time prepping. Didn't have great illustrations, maybe. Not great rhetoric. Rhetoric was very much valued in the Greek world. I didn't, I didn't worry about that. For I decided to know nothing among you except, and you may know what this says next, except Jesus Christ and what? His parables. You know. Except Jesus Christ and his teaching about love and mercy. No, about, except Jesus Christ and him what? Crucified. Now, the previous passage that gives some flavor to this. For the word of Christ is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews, he says, and you can think of Jews as the ca the, a category of religious people, the religious devout. For those who are religiously devout demand signs. In Greeks, that was the secular world. Greeks demand or seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a scandal, a stumbling block, a, a scandalon to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what does Paul say about the cross? Number one, he says, this is the center of life. It is the center of my mission. It is the center of my message. It is the thing that I resolve to know and know nothing else about. The cross is where I'm planning myself. And number two, it is not a popular message. It's not a very popular message. It's a scandal. It's a reproach. It is a stumbling block. Who is it a stumbling block to, does he say? Everyone. To those who are religious, to those who are not. The cross is a stumbling block to everyone. One author puts it like this, most church-going people are Jews 
on Sunday morning. That is religious on Sunday morning and Greeks the rest of the time. Secular the rest of the time. Religious people want inspirational experiences, messages of affirmation. Secular people want proofs. They want arguments, philosophy, science. The striking fact, she says, is that neither one of these groups really wants the cross. And her point is, and it's a, I think it's a point well taken for us, um, whereas the evangelists, the gospels, all move towards the cross. I and mean, I've told you this before, but a, a quarter to a third of the material in the stories, in the narratives, are all about the last seven days, are all about the cross. The evangelists move everything toward the cross. What she is saying is that in our lives, there will never be a drift towards the cross. You will never walk aimlessly in life and unintentionally and find yourself wanting to go to the cross. There is always religious and unreligious. There is always a drift away from it. Paul says, look, it's no way to make a living. It is no way to make a living. It is foolishness to the world. Now, why is that? Why is the cross a stumbling block? Well, let's turn back to John for a moment and see if we can revisit the details that he gives us. And, and I'll tell you this, John, you go back and read the other evangelists, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and John, I think, really tends to be the tamest of all the gospel writers when he writes about the crucifixion. But I do want you to notice his emphasis, and I, I said this to the men earlier this morning, you know, the focus when the cross is described in the gospels is not on the physical pain of Jesus. Like the evangelists say almost nothing about the physical pain he experienced. It was, it was certainly a torturous death. But the focus of the gospel writers and, and what was the primary rationale for crucifixion in the ancient world, the focus is on the shame of his death, the contempt, the humiliation of what happens, the degradation of God himself. And you can see it with John. So, I mean, you sort of read over this, but the very first thing we see is that a cross is chosen. I mean, Pilate could have used anything to execute Jesus. But he chooses a cross. And so the cross was reserved for the lowest class of criminals in the ancient world. No one knows the name, except in Christian tradition, of anyone that was ever executed on a cross. Because it, you didn't know their names. They were lost to history. They were nameless. They weren't important people, right? The second thing we see is that Jesus is made to carry his cross. He has to carry this instrument of his torture and death. This is after being flogged. Right? And so as a, as a show of public ridicule, he puts it on his own back and he carries it himself to the hill that is called Golgotha, not in the middle of the city, but outside, because the point of the cross was to make a human being no longer human. Did not belong in the city. Take him outside and do it there. Next, of course, he's given a crown of thorns. He's given uh, a spoof description of who he is, the king of the Jews. You know, think about most executions also. I mean, like even... I mean, not just modern-day executions, but ancient executions. Most, most people were given the, quick, the dignity of a quick death. They're also, their faces are covered sometimes with hoods, and the guillotine comes down, and, it, and it's over. But the cross was specifically designed to erase the dignity of quick death. You're hung out like an animal as a spectacle. Anyone ever been to West Texas and seen a coyote and barbed wire fence? I'm serious. You ever seen that before? Right? And like the, you know, there's rationale for that, that it's supposed to keep the other coyotes away. But it's also just a mockery of, look, we won. You came to eat my livestock, we got you. And here's what we're going to do. And that's how Jesus is hung out. And the irony here is that like, there's you know, all these people calling for animal cruelty when you know, look at the coyotes on the, on the fence. 
But here's a man, here's a man, whom the Bible writers describe as innocent, who is hung out like an animal to destroy his dignity. The soldiers take the last shred of covering that he has left, right? I mean, that's another important point there. When we want to take someone and humiliate them, what do we do to them? You take, you take their clothes off. Think about the torture that, that, uh, that happened at Abu Ghraib, right? All the, all the photographs that were released of, of what happened in that prison, and there was torturous things going on, but it was not just that. They were naked. Why were they naked? <laughs> Why take their clothes off? You could torture them with clothes on. Why do you make them naked? Because it is an ultimate insult to personal dignity. You've got nothing left to cover yourself, and Jesus has nothing left to cover himself. The express purpose of crucifixion in the ancient world was to degrade, to humiliate, and to shame, and to make a human being no longer seem human. Now, I just want, I want you to let that sink in for a moment because I, I want you to identify a little bit with what Paul had to deal with, which is the humiliation, the, de- the degradation of not just my central leader, but God is the message that I had to carry to the wider world. And that is not on the to-do list of anyone who is trying to win friends and influence people, right? Or who's trying to sort of start a new religion. And so Paul has to say, even as early as as Romans, you know, in, in his letter to the Romans, he has to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why would he have to say that? Because the gospel is an object of scorn and shame. I am not ashamed of what looks like a very and deeply shameful message. Another point I want to make just this morning is that um, it's interesting that, that Jesus is, in history, in, in the Gospels, in the early witnesses, Jesus is specifically identified with the instrument of his death. And so Paul doesn't just talk about, oh, the death, the death, the word of the death of Jesus is the power. No, he says the word of the cross is the power. And you think about like martyrs or people that died throughout history, Christians are non-Christians, like Socrates, how did he die? He drank, he drank hemlock, right? Like, and he, and we, um, people think of a heroic death. Martin Luther King Jr., shot for what he believed. Right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, executed, executed for what he believed in a Nazi death camp. We never associate martyrs with the, with the means of their death. We don't say the gun of Martin Luther King Jr., we don't say the hemlock of Socrates, it's the point for them is that they died. It's not how they died. The point about Jesus is how he died. It is, the, it is the cross that is the word of power. It is the cross, Paul says, that is both a scandal and yet is the center of the gospel. That God so loved us that as John starts his gospel, remember how he starts it in, in chapter 3? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But now he finishes that. He gave his only son to do what? To to go reside in the high places with kings. To go live in power and glory and amazement. No, he gave his only son to go to the lowest place. The lowest place of shame and hurt and degradation so that the world might be made right and rectified and have life abundantly. John finishes here. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to hang in humiliation, with us and for us. And listen to me, Paul calls it a scandal. And I want you to feel this this morning. Paul calls it a scandal or a stumbling block because as much as we may enjoy the teachings 
and parables and mercy and victory and glory of Jesus, no one really wants to take a journey into the heart of darkness and shame. And that's where God is inviting us to go. And, and yet Paul calls it a power because it is that journey where the love of God is most aggressively and dynamically experienced and unleashed in our lives. A stumbling block because no one wants to go there, and yet it is the power of God there because that is where the love of God, that's where we meet the love of God most dynamically and most aggressively for us. If we want the power of God, Paul says, we have to have the scandal of the cross. That is, we must reckon with the fact that God has entered into the world to intrude upon our lives in the very places we most want to run away and hide. God has entered into the world to intrude upon our lives in the very places we most want to run away and hide. Where are the disciples at this moment of scandal and of humiliation? Where are they? Besides John, they're gone. They want to run away and hide. And God says, this is where I've come to do my work. Where do you want to hide? I mean, think about that. What are the places, what are the, the things that you're tempted to hide from others, that you're tempted to hide from? An embarrassing entanglement with sin in your life. What you, what you look at when no one's watching or how you handle your money. Um, your relationship with your spouse, your family, the, um, the, the, uh, the falling apart of your career, your faith, the fact that, that, that the self that you present is, is way more fragile, more superficial, more lonely than you would have anyone to know. You tempted to hide from how messed up the world really is outside of the bubble that we often live in. Paul says we can feel the, something of the scandal of the cross personally by imagining the places that we don't want to go. And, and Paul says that it's there outside the city, in those places, in our lives, in our world, that the power of God is at work. And so we don't have to fear going to those places because God is there in Christ. That is where his love is designed to meet, renew, and to remake us. The contempt of the cross, it's easy to want to skip over. We never drift towards it. How does that power express itself in our lives? Well, look next in verses 25 through 27, and this is the community that's formed here at the cross. So John is the only one that records these particular, particular words. And so um, what's going on is Jesus has been crucified. And as he's, as he's being crucified, once again, we don't get an account of him groaning or anything else. We get, we get him looking at uh, his mother first. And he says towards John, behold your son. And then to John, behold your mother. And the point I think Jesus is making here is he's saying, by virtue of what I'm doing right now, you two are no longer just acquaintances. You kind of knew each other because you, were, you, know, you, had a, you had a similar hero or a similar person in your life. You're no longer just acquaintances. You're not just friends. You're not just individual disciples. You are a family. Right? Like you, behold your son. Behold your mother. That is, you belong to one another, not by your choice, but through my suffering, whether you're soulmates or not, 
whether you took a compatibility test and it just felt right, you're a family no matter what. And you think, okay, Jesus could have used a lot of different ways to, to talk about the forging of this new relationship. Why a family? Why, why a family? Behold your mother. He could have just said, hey, behold. And if he just wanted John to take care of his mother, he said, look, behold my mom. Would you make sure that, she, would you make sure that she's taken care of? No, behold your mother. Why a family? What does a family mean? Anybody seen Christmas Vacation? Maybe? Okay. Um, Cousin Eddie pulls up in an RV. He comes out in a bathrobe, smoking a cigar and emptying his stuff in your sewer. Cousin Eddie gets to stay. Why doesn't Cousin Eddie, why, why doesn't he have to leave? What does Clark say to his wife? He's family. Family is, we're together no matter what. I would never choose you. I would never choose Cousin Eddie. I wouldn't choose you but we're together. We've been made and put together, and so we have to make the best of this together. Now, why is the timing of this so important? It's important because what Jesus is saying is that the cross empowers us to live into this ideal fully. The cross is the, the instrument, the, the occasion that empowers us to live together as brothers, as brothers around your table, as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and, and daughters to live as those who have seen in the, in the flesh of the Son of God our sin and our shame uncovered. Right? And so who in theory, in theory, in theory have nothing to hide. In theory have nothing to hide. Who in theory have every reason to hope around your tables this morning that, that God's relentless love will stop at nothing to finish the work of destroying the power of sin and shame and fear in our lives. Jesus says, look, Mary, remember this moment. John, remember this moment. This is the moment that teaches you what it means to love one another and to live together as mother and son. This is the moment, men, that teaches what it is to bear with one another as brothers who have no other relationship except the word of Jesus, except the word of Christ at the cross making you into a family. In theory, I keep saying that because it's difficult in practice, but in theory, the cross is fleshed out in power by how we do life together. So John, Jesus has already hinted at this in, in John's gospel, right? He says, by this, all men will know you're my disciples. How? By your love for one another. By your convincing arguments and proofs. By uh, how early you get up to your quiet times. No one sees that, right? Unless you make it a, an announcement. By this, you will, by this, people will know that you belong to me, by how you practice the love and the family relationship that I am forging here at the foot of my cross. And the cross means that that happens not when we're okay, right? Not when we have everything together, not when things are going well, but in the, in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our shame, we're able to look at each other and say, this is who I am. Jesus has shown everybody already, nothing to hide. Would you help me? Would you help me? One of my favorite wedding stories comes from a friend of mine who, um, who had two little boys at the time. I, I may have told this story before, but if I, if I did, just bear with me. It's been four years. So um, two little boys who were made to be the ring bearers at a wedding. His uh, wedding, he was officiating, actually, and um, dressed up, you know. And Number one, if, if, you, if, you're, if you're coming up on a wedding, young guys or whatever, 
always have ring bearers, always have little kids to come down the aisle first. It just lightens everybody up. The unpredictability is good for the wedding. It's good for the atmosphere, okay? Um, and it's, it's good to watch the moms like freak out a little bit too about what's going on. Uh, so anyway, so his son, his, uh, his son David comes down and he you know, takes a step down the aisle and all of a sudden he drops what he's carrying and he puts his arms up and he starts growling at everyone. <laughs> and baring his teeth and growling all the way down the aisle, he growls. Because come to find out, he thought he was being asked to be the ring bearer. <laughs> right? Not the ring bearer. Right? And so he was, you know, playing the part appropriately. And, and my friend said something interesting. He said, you know, you can, dress, you can dress kids up however you want. You can put them in tuxes. You can put them in dresses. It doesn't change who they really are. It rarely even disguises it for the 60 seconds they have to walk down the aisle. Jesus hangs on a cross, not in a tux. Um, not mass, not disguise, not in power and glory, but here naked, uncovered, vulnerable, identifying with the parts of us that we so badly want to cover up in tuxes and suits and smiles and rhetoric. And he does so so that we might identify with one another in those same places. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a great little uh, treatise on community called Life Together. I'm sure many of you have heard of it at some point. Um, this is before he landed in prison, so he, at this point he's running an underground church in Germany. And he says this at one point. He says, the final breakthrough to community, the final breakthrough to fellowship, to relationships, does not occur often in the church. It's prevented. And here's why. Because though we have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, we rarely have fellowship with sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone has to conceal his sin from himself and from everyone else. He says, we dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered in their midst among the righteous. And so we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is, he says, that we are, we are sinners. His point is that the fa- really the power of the word of the cross. So Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran. They're big on the cross, man. The power of the word of the cross occurs when we dare to be honest with one another, uncovered as Jesus was with us. That doesn't mean we do an open mic and call you up here to like just sort of spill your guts. Um, this takes discernment and wisdom and read the Proverbs for all that, trust, process, yada, yada, yada. But the point is, one of the great ways that we in community drift away from the cross is when we do church in a way in which people are encouraged to hide, to remain alone, to live in lies and hypocrisy, as Bonhoeffer puts it. The cross in theory and in practice should allow us to say, brother, I need your help. I'm dying over here. What should allow us to say, brother, can I help you? I can see that you're dying, and I know exactly what you're going through. I know exactly what you're going through. Jesus makes us to be a family in that shadow where shame is uncovered, not hidden. And the final power for living that way is found in the conclusion in verse 30 in John's gospel, at least. I wish we had time to unpack more of this. I'm already late this morning, but... 
John just says, and three times he says it in this paragraph, but it, it gets its culminating word when Jesus himself says it. He receives the sour wine, and then he says, it is finished, and he bows his head and gives up his spirit. Now, um, the words, it is finished, is, is a famous moment in the Gospels. Uh, three words, it is finished, but it's one word in the Greek. It is tetelestai, which is, I mean, to put some of you to sleep, it's in the perfect tense, right? So the perfect tense in the Greek meant a finished act. It was done. A finished act with present continuing force. A present act that had present continuing force. And the meaning here is that some matter or something has been brought to its conclusion. It's telos. It's perfection, its end. And what is that thing? What is the matter that has finally been perfected? Well, well, John is very careful to sort of uh, give us bookends for his gospel. And the very first thing he tells us about Jesus from the lips of anyone else after the incarnation is when Jesus arrives on the scene and John the Baptist notices him. And do you remember what John the Baptist announces to everyone else? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Behold, this is his mission. Here is the Lamb of God come, away, come to take away the sin of the world. Now, why was Jesus called a lamb? Well, it's not because he was gentle and meek. He was those things, but that's not why. A lamb in the Old Testament was presented as the atonement. It was, it was the substitution for the sins of God's people. Never sufficient to enact justice fully, but the lamb was a picture, a sacrament of what God would one day do in full. And John is saying that now the true lamb is here, and it is his death, his atonement, his sacrifice in full public view, bearing the curse of our humiliation. So that sin and its close cousins, guilt and shame, are not just exposed. The point is not just to expose them, but to take them away. To take them away. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin and its cousins, the guilt and shame of the world. And Jesus says that project is finished. When we first moved to Dallas, we experienced something that we had never seen before. Um, in our neighborhood, we had something called Dump Day. Y'all still have, anybody still have Dump Day in your neighborhood? You put all the stuff out in the, you know, and we loved Dump Day. Mostly our young boy loved Dump Day because the trucks would come, right? But we loved Dump Day because we were always surprised at what people could put out there and what they were willing to take away, right? And so... Um, People like, you got, you know, these yards that were all, all, all perfectly manicured usually. All of a sudden, the curbs were filled with old couches, right? Garden sheds, rusted, huge trees, um, uh, you know, um, bottles of paint. Whatever you wanted, whatever, whatever was garbage in your house, it was put out there. And then um, all of a sudden, I come home from work and it was all gone. I'm sure there was some criteria, but we didn't know what it was. And so whatever the junk you had, whatever the size, whatever the condition, it was out there for everyone to see, and then in a moment it was gone. The curbs and the streets and the yards were clean again, and all the junk, all the stuff had now been hidden, that had been hidden, now public, was taken away. You can't see that quite as easily in your life. But Jesus Christ is asking you to believe that his suffering and degradation was the once and for all cosmic event in which all of your junk, no matter the size, no matter the condition, no matter what you bring out on the curb, has been taken away. It has been taken away. Your pile won't look like everyone else's. 
But whatever is out there, it is taken away in Christ. Its power is taken away. Now, I get that it's still present. But what the gospel says is that what sin has the power to do to you has been destroyed. The shame and the guilt and the need to hide and the fear that this thing will define you or, or be you, that is overcome and is no more. So that practically, listen to me, practically, when you sense the power of sin, as Paul calls it, at work in your life, when you sense the power of embarrassment, of shame, of guilt, it is the word of the cross. It is the scandal of the cross that is the weapon that you have to fight back. God the Son has already brought shame to light in its fullest sense on the cross and his contempt. God the Son has created a community of brothers and sisters who can know you in theory and help you, not that we do it perfectly, but that are designed to do that for one another. And God the Son has finished the work not only of exposing sin and shame, but of taking it away, of hauling it away. Paul says the word of the cross, the word of the degradation of God is foolishness. I mean, it's just not an easy message. It's foolishness. But for you, it is the power of God, if you believe. Resolve to live in its power and wonder and in its scandal. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you this morning for your love for us that, that you've really given us uh, not just demonstration and proof, but you've enacted um, your love for us by sharing what we are embarrassed to talk about, by being exposed. And in that moment, not just, not just being a friend who knows how to identify with us, but actually taking it away. Resolving to be the lamb who, because of, of you being unblemished, could remove the stigma and the power of sin in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to drift away from the cross. And our love for all things good and our love for all things powerful and glorious and beautiful and easy and comfortable, would you recenter us? as Paul says, um, to, know, to want to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.